Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is in the Blue Pew Bible on page 835. Uh, You can find one of those under your chair or under the chair in front of you. Please turn there with us. Like last week, we'll be doing a lot of flipping today. So I would encourage you to have your Bible open and ready. Today we're in week two of our series on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Last week, uh, we started by answering the question, what is the church? It's not a building, it's it's an assembly, it's a gathering of people who've been redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. We saw throughout the gospel of Matthew, specifically in Matthew 16 and 18, that Jesus is the foundation of his church, that it is on the proclamation of and faith in his gospel that Jesus himself builds his church. We looked at three categories theologians have used to try to take what the New Testament teaches and define the church. First, we saw that the church is both universal and it is local. The majority of the references to ecclesia in the New Testament are to localized gatherings of Christians, but there are references that speak above that, references to Christ being the head of his church, his body, the fullness of it, Christ loving and dying for his church, not one local church, but the entire universal church. And with that being the case, we also looked at who makes up this universal church that Christ died for, and we concluded that it was for the children of the promise in the Old Testament who looked forward to the promise yet fulfilled, and the Jew-Gentile saints of the New Testament who looked to Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises, true Israel, the mystery revealed. Within that category, we got the second category, invisible and visible church. The invisible church is the pure ecclesia of all the redeemed, all those whose names have been written by God in the Lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world, those who are truly saved, the church as God sees it. The visible church is a mixed ecclesia of men and women who've professed faith in Christ and display the fruits of obedience, but may or may not genuinely be Christians, the church as we see it. The Lord knows who are his, who are true members of his body, the universal, invisible church, but we can't see that. Even still, praise be to God, because Jesus, our prophet, priest, king, hasn't left his church in the dark. True members of his body manifest themselves in local, visible churches. And it's not via a tattoo on our forehead or on our wrist. Jesus, as we will see today in, in Matthew 28, has given his church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Which brings us to the third category, which I told you I would bring up today. True, false churches. Amongst visible local churches, there are false churches and there are true churches. Dating back even to the Reformation, the two distinguishing marks of a true church have been the right preaching of the word of God and the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. True churches are founded on and preach the gospel 
from the whole council of the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity incarnated among us. He became a man like us and he lived the perfect life of obedience to God. Yet it was God's eternal plan that Jesus would lay his life down for us. He would die and be buried, but his work wouldn't be finished yet. He would rise from the dead, rising from the grave, conquering sin and death so that by faith in him, sinners like you and me could be forgiven of our sin, the sin that separates us from our God, and we could be made righteous with Christ's righteousness. And effectively, we would be reconciled to God through him. And as we, you and I, are reconciled to God through Jesus, we are effectively reconciled to one another. He has made us both members of his one body. True churches preach this gospel. And true churches, therefore, practice the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because the ordinances themselves Proclaim this gospel. Being baptized and baptizing proclaims the gospel. And the partaking of the Lord's Supper every time we gather proclaims this gospel. Within the category of true churches, to be clear, there are more pure churches and less pure churches. This largely revolves around their conformity to the Word of God. Questions that you can answer or questions that you can ask are. Is the proclamation of the word strong or is it weak? Is the entirety of the worship faithful or is it superficial? Is there missional engagement or none? A church can preach the gospel, administer the ordinances, but be in a different place of purity than another and still be a true church. False churches, however are groups that were either not founded on the gospel or they were and have since abandoned the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. They preach something else and therefore they do not rightly administer the ordinances that proclaim the gospel. This right preaching of the word of God and the right administration of the ordinances brings us to Matthew 28 where we find the institution of the first ordinance for Christ's church, baptism. So look with me at Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three overarching points for us this morning, and I'm going to give them to you here up front. First, the keys, the church, and the ordinances, specifically baptism. That's the first point. 
I want us to start by looking at the relationship between Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and our text, Matthew 28. The keys, the church, the ordinances. Point number two, what is baptism? We'll define it. And point number three, the beauty of baptism. We're going to look at the greater gospel realities that our water baptisms point us to. So those are the three. That's where we're going. First one today, the keys, the church, and the ordinances, baptism. I want us to start by looking at the relationship between Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and our text, Matthew 28, with regards to baptism. We'll actually be making this connection today and the same kind of connection for the next two weeks when we talk about church membership and discipline and when we talk about the Lord's Supper. So for these three weeks, we, we should understand these three weeks together. And admittedly, it's difficult to parse them out like this because it all revolves around the same thing. That is, the church exercises the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So first things first, let's look at Matthew 28. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is talking to his apostles here. Those 11 disciples who remained with him, Judas being removed, and Matthias not having replaced him yet. That comes in Acts 1. But notice what he says to his apostles first in 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is significant. This is going to connect us back to Matthew 16 and 18, but let me show you that you can make connections like this yourself, okay? There's two deductions that we can make, and if you are sitting at home reading your Bible, you could make these deductions yourself by just observing the text and asking questions. Look at verse 18. Ask the question, who has all the authority in heaven and on earth? The answer, Jesus. He said, it's been given to me, and there... That's significant. It's been given to Jesus. But there's something below the surface that we shouldn't miss with our question. Jesus says that all authority was given to him. What does that imply? That imply someone else gave him that authority. So next question. Who gives Jesus the authority over heaven and earth? The answer, the Father. The Father has given Jesus this authority. Flip over with me to John Chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. John 17, verses 1 through 5 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus received his authority from his Father, and in receiving his authority, he exercises that authority himself as the Father is exercising the authority himself. Okay, back to verse 2 in John 17. Jesus exercises that authority when he gives eternal life to whomever the Father gives him. Very interesting. Flip back to 
Keep that nugget in your head. Flip back to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we looked at it last week, verse 15 through 19. Okay, I'm going to read it. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. First, I want you to see the connection. Christ's building of his church is an exercise of his authority. John 17, 2, we just read it. Jesus has authority over all flesh to give eternal life. And remember last week, Jesus gives eternal life to his church. His gospel is the foundation of his church. Those who repent and trust his gospel, this is how he builds his church, his building his church, therefore, is an exercise of his authority. The second thing that I want you to notice in verse 19, Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus was given all authority by the Father and building his church involves an exercise of his authority and the building of the church includes the exercise of his keys, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus, who possesses the authority delegated to him by the Father, Jesus is now delegating his authority to the apostles. That's a lot of authority. The third thing I want you to notice is the tenses of the verbs Jesus uses in verse 18 and verse 19. You can see this in your English Bibles. He starts with, I tell you, verse 18, that's the present active. He's telling Peter right now, the apostles right now. And what does he say? You're Peter on this rock. I will build my church. This verb is in the future active indicative. Keep going. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, that's future active indicative. Verse 19, I will give you the keys and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. Whatever you loose shall be loosed. The I will give is future active indicative. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that they don't have that authority yet. They don't have it yet. Christ will give them this authority, but not now. And why is that? Well, think of the timeline. Think of the timeline. Christ had not finished the work he came to accomplish yet. He'd not accomplished our salvation. He'd not fulfilled all the promises of God yet because he still had to die for our sins as our substitute. And after three days, rise. He'd not finished his work yet, but he will. And when he does... All authority would be given him as the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords who sits at the right hand of the Father, Father, the hand of authority, who in his hand, Jesus, holds the keys to heaven, according to this text. You can't give someone a key you don't possess. So if he gives it, he must possess the keys. So flip forward to Matthew 18, right next, right next, next page over. Verse 15 through 20, excuse me. I'm going to start at verse 17. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The connection here with Matthew 16 is that the same language that Jesus uses to describe the exercising of the keys by his apostles is the language he uses here, but it's not in reference to his apostles. Who is he referencing? The church. Verse 17's connection to verse 18 is important. Notice, if a person who claims to be a brother, that is a Christian, but refuses to listen to the admonition from one other or even two other or more Christians, it is to be told to the church. Now, surely this shouldn't be understood as the universal invisible church, so this must be understood to be a local visible church. And once this is told, if that person still doesn't listen, they are to be regarded by the church, not as a brother, but an outsider, a non-Christian. They are to bound, they are to be bound in their sin, to use the language. Now we'll walk through that in more detail next week, Lord willing. But the connection I want you to see from Matthew 28 to Matthew 16 to Matthew this, Matthew 18 here is this. The authority that the Father gave to Jesus that Jesus gave to the apostles to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and to loose on earth, that authority is now given to the church. In Matthew 18, the church removes a member of its body, signifying that person is still bound in their sin. They're unrepentant which gives evidence they may not truly be loosed from their sin. They may not be saved. So the church declares them to be an outsider, a non-Christian, no longer able to affirm their salvation, thus binding them in their sin and releasing them into the world. The church has been given the authority to do this. That's a lot of authority. Now, before moving back to Matthew 28, I want to be clear. Last week, as you recall, we spent a majority of our time thinking then through the universal invisible church. But here on, we'll be talking about the universal invisible as it manifests itself in local visible churches. We finished last week with a big word. Remember that word, spatio-temporal? The church is spatio-temporal. It takes up space and time. Well, it's in local churches that we see the universal invisible on earth right now. And as we just saw in Matthew 18, it's these visible local churches here on earth that Christ has given authority to exercise his keys. Meaning, it's not an individual member of Christ's universal invisible body that can do this, or even a group of them at that that have been given the authority by Jesus to exercise the keys? No, Jesus has not given Christians individually this authority. Jesus gives this authority to local, visible gatherings of believers. Which beckons the question, what constitutes a local, visible church? Okay, Just because Christians gather doesn't mean that gathering is a church, right? You know this. A gathering of individual Christians for a Bible study is not a church. 
three, five, ten people, ten Christians having dinner together is not a church. A bunch of teenagers on fire for Christ. Their love for Christ is evident. And they go to a camp together where there's pastors and there's church leaders present. That's not a church. So what's a local church? Well, to paraphrase one author, I think this definition is helpful. The local church is born when gospel people, that is Christians, baptized Christians we're arguing here, form a gospel polity. And the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are the effective signs of that polity. It's important. Some of you might hear polity and you get nervous, but this is a good word for us because the New Testament never ascribes a polity, an order, a structure to the universal invisible church. It's an invisible ecclesia. But it does ascribe a polity, a form, a structure to a local visible church. That is, it gives it form to follow. There's a clear expectation that the local visible church should look a certain way, be composed of certain people, and do certain things. So when do you cross the line from a group of Christians who hang out to a church? What forms that gospel polity? The exercising of the keys. Christians move from a gathering of many individuals to one corporate body when they mutually agree to meet together in the name of Christ under the authority of his word and exercise the keys together. Baptists call this covenanting together. We mutually agree to meet together in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We mutually agree to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as the scriptures teach us and to exercise the keys on and with one another. What does that entail? That entails an agreement on the gospel. What is sound doctrine? And the proclamation of that gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, grounded in the preaching of the inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God and the administration of the ordinances. We publicly affirm together the credibility of each other's faith through baptism and subsequent membership into our body, which we hope reflects the invisible body of Christ in our visible body. And at that point, we regularly affirm together our oneness in Christ as a corporate body of baptized believers when we take the Lord's Supper together. One author puts it this way. It's a little easier to retain. Baptism and the Lord's Supper give the church visible, institutional form and order. They knit many into one. Church membership names a relation that the ordinances create. The ordinances mold the church into a shape called membership. That just means that our church wouldn't be a church apart from us being members of the church. That is to say, as we discuss visible local churches from here on out, the church is her membership, which is defined first by baptism and then continually the administration of the Lord's Supper together. 
The ordinances function as visible boundaries between the church and the world. Believers in Christ inside, non-believers on the outside. The ordinances have been given by Christ to his church by Christ for the purpose of exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven. For binding and loosing visibly, tangibly here on earth, according to Matthew 18. So we're, think about this. What are keys used for? Well, if something is closed and locked, keys are used to open it. If something is open, you use a key to close it, right? What do we open and close according to Matthew 16 and 18? The kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus call this opening and closing? Loosing and binding. Turn back with me to Matthew 28 if you're not already there. 28 verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Here is our connection all the way back to baptism. What is this making disciples? Making disciples happens when we, church, faithfully and wholeheartedly believe ourselves and proclaim the one gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died and was buried, that he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that by faith, sinners like you and me can be forgiven of our sin that separates us from God. We can be made righteous in Christ's righteousness, and effectively we can be reconciled to God. We proclaim this gospel, and as we proclaim it, what happens? Christ is the one building his church. The Spirit opens eyes to see, ears to hear. People repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. They become disciples of Christ. They're loosed from their sin by the Spirit. They're saved. And then what? We baptize them. The church exercises the keys by proclaiming the gospel and binding and loosing on earth. In binding, we declare someone to be unrepentant, bound in their sin. But in loosing, we declare someone to be loosed from their sin, to be saved. And Jesus has given the church the ordinances to give visible shape to our binding and loosing. So hear this. Within the proclamation of the gospel, many will believe that message, Lord willing, and will therefore be loosed by the Spirit from their sins and sin's penalty, which is judgment. Faith in Jesus alone releases us, okay? Jesus looses us from our bondage to sin and death. That's Romans 8. But Jesus gives the church the authority to bind and loose on earth. And what we do visibly on earth is reflective of what is happening invisibly in heaven. The unrepentant are bound for judgment. Saints are loosed and saved. This happens in verse 19 as we go and make disciples. Both occur as the gospel is being proclaimed and people either believe it or reject it. And when people believe the gospel, they're loose from their sins. And the visible sign that we've been given by Christ, that he's given to his church to reflect this invisible spiritual reality on earth is baptism. So let's talk about it. Point number two. What is baptism? I'm going to answer this question three times. 
and in three different ways so we can get a well-rounded picture. Lord willing, each definition helps answer questions you might have with regards to baptism. To be honest, I may not answer all your questions right now, but the elders and I would be happy to discuss anything further with you. If you have any other questions, please grab me, grab Pastor Chad, grab Pastor Bob. But number one, three definitions. First definition, baptism is the immersion of a believer in water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. If you aren't already there, look back at Matthew 28, verse 19. Here, Jesus is commanding his apostles, go. By extension, as we saw in Matthew 16 and 18, he's also speaking to his church to go and make disciples of all nations. We make disciples by proclaiming the gospel and watching the Lord bring dead hearts to life as people repent and believe the gospel. And when we see that happening in our midst, we are to baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here in Matthew 28, baptism is being instituted, commanded by Christ as the first ordinance to be observed by his church. It is the first because Christ has appointed baptism to be the believer's entry point, the only door into the covenant people of God, his church. Baptism draws the line. It's a sign that draws the line between a member of this body, his body, and an outsider in the world who does not profess Christ as their Lord. Therefore, all who profess Christ as their Lord are obligated to be baptized in response to that reality. Baptism is not optional for a Christian. It's, a mat- it's not a matter of conviction, but of obligation from Jesus. Christ commands his church to baptize. Christ commands the new convert, to be baptized. This indeed is the first order of business, so to speak. The first command to obey. And interestingly enough, obedience to this command serves to visibly manifest the saving work that the Spirit has invisibly wrought in our hearts. Notice in our definition as well, there's a mode of baptism. It is to be done in water, by immersion. That is, a person is completely put down into the water and then brought back up again. For thousands of years, honestly, the meaning of the Greek words for washing here, and there are several, have all been debated. Does it mean dipped? Does it mean sprinkling? Does it mean immersion? And without digging into the weeds, we're not doing that. What the most convincing thing is for me here is the word used is baptizo. Baptizo is also used in reference to, uh, when Paul uses it in reference to washing away of sins or the total washing of regeneration, baptizo, is also the only word used when the administration of water baptism happens in the New Testament, in Acts. Every time someone is baptized, that word is used. And the connection from that with what it signifies or symbolizes, which we'll see in our third point, the connection there would make the complete immersion in water the appropriate mode for baptism. We're completely washed from our sins and made new, completely given new life. There's nothing partial, nothing abstract. Also notice in our definition the subjects of baptism, people who believe the gospel. This means they have to hear the gospel. 
They have to respond to the gospel. And the appropriate response to the gospel is repentance, faith, and baptism. Flip over with me to Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 38. We're going to do a little skim here. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter just got done proclaiming the gospel. Verse 38, they, or verse 37, they asked, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, flip over to Acts 8. Verse 12, Acts 8, verse 12 says this. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Look down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Go down to uh, Verse 38, he had just preached the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Interesting that it was a desert place, but there so happened to be enough water there for baptism. Maybe it's a miracle. Look look into that some other time. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That language there, up, going down into, going up out of the water, seems to indicate immersion. Go to chapter 9, verse 18. 18 says, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then Paul rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Notice, he received the gospel from Ananias and was baptized. Last one, chapter 10, verse 45 through 48 says this, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Baptized believers. They heard the gospel, they received it, they believed it, they were baptized in response to it. This also brings into the discussion the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to bring this up to be clear. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist does himself say that Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is a cleansing, refining fire, and he does. But I want to make clear here The abundant pouring out of the Holy Spirit in these ways in Acts, you see it in Jerusalem in Acts 2, all the disciples are filled with the Spirit, they speak in tongues, the mighty works of God, people hear the gospel. You see it uh, with the Samaritans in Acts 8, you see it with the Gentiles in Acts 10. These moments of the Spirit being poured out serve to confirm the gospel message to those hearers, to confirm that the mystery of the gospel was for the Jews and the Gentiles. God was making one new people through the Lord Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And we see that. We shouldn't understand this, this baptism of the Spirit, as teaching some second 
baptism. Some people call this second baptism the baptism of the Holy Spirit that results in some greater spiritual gifting or some greater assurance of salvation even. But hear me when I say this. All who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We have all received the promised Holy Spirit who is our seal, our comforter, our guarantee of the inheritance that is laid up for, it, laid up for us in heaven. He is our helper, our comforter. He is with us and is in us and will remain with us and in us, empowering us to gospel proclamation and other things that we see in the New Testament. But his baptism occurs for us as we repent and we believe the gospel, and he incorporates us into his one true, universal, invisible body. That is the, one of the aspects of the invisible reality that our visible baptisms represent. Lastly, note in this first definition that it's done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This draws the line that baptism done in any other name is not baptism. Baptism done in the Mormon church is not baptism. In the Jehovah's Witnesses church is not baptism. Baptism done apart from belief in the one true gospel is not baptism, which connects us with our second definition. Second definition. Baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. It's the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. This definition, though not original to him, can be attributed to a man named Bobby Jameson in his book, Going Public. He also wrote a book on baptism, and I would encourage you to read both if you want to learn more about this subject. In fact, if that's something that you want to do, please contact me. I'd love to get you copies of the book free of charge. Just let me know. Now, this understanding of baptism, though it's not new with him uh, and doesn't originate with him, it may be new to some of you. We do live in a Christian culture that is plagued by nominalism. It errs in being superficial and ungrounded, largely disconnected from historic Christian orthodoxy for a variety of reasons. And what inevitably comes is a devaluing of the gospel, and whether intentional or not, and when we devalue the gospel, the ordinances follow. There are a lot of churches that don't teach about baptism this way. But baptism has been understood as the initiating oath sign of the new covenant for the majority of church history. I would argue beginning in its conception. This is the sign of entrance into Christ's church. Look with me again at Matthew 28 verse 19. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that preposition in there can also be translated into, okay? We're baptized and are to baptize into the name of the triune God. That language is important. It rings of God's covenant name revealed to Abraham in Genesis 15, revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, now fully revealed to us by Jesus here in Matthew 28. We are being baptized into God's covenant name. Now, Jameson, the same guy, points out something really helpful. He says this, being baptized into God's name is an act of covenantal initiation. 
and identification. When God makes a covenant with people, he identifies himself with them and they with him. To be baptized into the name of the triune God is to be initiated into covenantal identification with him. And this, covenantal, this covenant identification entails ownership. We now belong to God. D.A. Carson also comments on this, saying, the preposition into strongly suggests a coming into relationship with God or a coming under the lordship of God. So baptism is a sign of both entrance into the Messiah's covenant community and of pledged submission to his lordship. One more thing Jameson writes. He says this. We see in Matthew 28, 19 that the new covenant commands comprehensive obedience to Jesus' teaching. And baptism pledges us to this obedience. Baptism is not merely an act of obedience among all other commands of Christ. It is the first act through which we pledge our submission and obedience to our Lord. So let me try to bring some things together and clear some things up here. Baptism is the initiating oath sign because in our baptism, we are submitting to Christ's lordship. We're committing ourselves to obey all that he's taught. And with submission to his lordship, we're also signifying our entrance into his covenant community, his church. Because it's his church that submits to him. It is the first thing the Lord calls his new covenant convert to do. To identify with God and identify with his people. Now, admittedly, this is brief, but with regards to the connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament, they are similar in respect that they are both visible initiatory signs to be done by God's covenant people, but they are not a one-to-one transition. Baptism, in this sense, doesn't simply replace circumcision. The covenants they represent are vastly different, and therefore, their signs signify different realities. Circumcision itself serving as a sign to the people of God of what would happen if they broke covenant with Yahweh. They would be cut off. It threatened judgment. Whereas baptism serves as a sign of our judgment falling on the Lord Jesus and our forgiveness by faith in him. We do not receive that judgment because of Jesus. They are not identical signs with the same meaning. They are similar signs used to distinguish God's chosen people from the world, but the people and the spiritual reality they represent are different. It was brief. Third definition. Baptism is a means of grace. Baptism is a means of grace. Now I want you to hear me when I say this. Baptism does not infuse grace into someone. Baptism does not save. It is not salvific. Baptism is not required for salvation. Think of the thief on the cross. He was not baptized, but the Lord Jesus promised him that he would be with him in paradise. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, but baptism is a means of grace 
both for those who receive its sign and its seal and for the lost in the world that witness it. God uses means. He uses means of grace as instruments to either, in this case, bless or convert. What I'm saying here is that God uses baptism itself to bless the one being baptized. God uses baptism as the means to do the blessing. And he does the same for the lost that see our baptisms. God may just use your public baptism as the means by which he calls someone else to repentance and faith. They see it and he causes their minds to understand the greater gospel realities that, are pre- that it represents. They long for the Lord. They call out to him as a result. Baptism isn't something we do haphazardly. It is a holy ordinance that we ought to do with reverence and awe, giving glory to God for the work that he accomplished in our hearts to bring us to it and the work that he may accomplish through it. Now, listen to this quote by Herman Bobbing. It's a little longer, so Christian, I have it on the slides there. Up to this point, Bobbing has said what I've said. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but that in no way makes it unimportant. As we've seen, it's very important. It draws a line. But this is what Bobbing says. Nevertheless, the sacraments, the ordinances, have great value because we are not disembodied spirits, but sensuous earthly creatures who can only understand spiritual things when they come to us in humanly perceptible forms. God instituted the sacraments in order that by seeing those signs, we might gain a better insight into his benefits, receive a stronger confirmation of his promises, and thus be supported and strengthened in our faith. The sacraments do not work faith, but reinforce it as a wedding ring reinforces love. They do not infuse a physical grace, but confer the whole Christ whom and by whom believers already possess by the word. They bestow on them that same Christ in another way and by another road and so strengthen their faith. Furthermore, they renew the believer's covenant with God, strengthen them in the communion of Christ, join them more closely to each other, set them apart from the world, and witness to angels and their fellow human beings, showing that they are the people of God, the church of Christ, the communion of the saints. I mean, think about it, church. What if that person you've been praying for, your neighbor, your friend, your child that's sitting in the seat next to you? What if they profess faith in Christ? What if we all tested that profession and it proved credible? What if that person came forward to be baptized? When we step into the water together and we put them under, does that well up any sense of joy in your heart? Does that thought alone embolden you, empower you, well you up with excitement to think We've put them down, put them in there to bring them back up. What a beautiful means of grace that we get to portray invisible spiritual realities with a visible, tangible sign. And the Spirit uses these signs to increase our faith, church, to knit us together, to fill us with a longing for more. And that's just because we baptize someone. We witness a transitioning of kingdoms, of lordship, 
we get a glimpse of new creation. And we welcome a new brother or sister into the body of Christ. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Which brings us to our last point to close our time. The beauty of baptism. I hope you've slowed down to consider this already, but if not, I encourage you to stop, maybe even today, maybe even sometime this week, stop and consider Christ's love for his church in that he would give her a sign that would not only help her distinguish her members from the world, but that would also serve her as a visible reminder of the gospel that saved her. Praise God. As we close our time today, I want us to look at the beauty of this ordinance. As we see it in the New Testament, we see its beauty and all the things that baptism actually signifies and symbolizes. For those who are members at RBC, I pray that this would remind you of your own baptism. And when you remember, I pray these truths would bring you joy and encouragement. For those here who are guests with us who've profess faith in Christ as Lord and have been baptized into his name, I pray the same for you, joy and encouragement. For those here who claim Christ as Lord but haven't gone public with their faith, you haven't been baptized, I pray that the Spirit would use these realities to swell within you a deeper love for the gospel and a desire to be baptized into your Lord's name. Finally, if you're here and you don't believe the gospel, I pray that the Spirit would create in you a longing for Him, for relationship with Him, for inclusion into His body, a longing for all these things that are true of baptized believers because, friend, they can be true for you. Talk to anyone you've seen up here this morning, and we would love to talk to you about what it means to repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, and be baptized. But looking at the beauty of baptism, I want to give us five things that we can hold on to. Six. Lost count. Really quickly. Number one, baptism is a public profession of repentance and faith. Look over at Acts 2. Again, Acts 2, verse 38. What happens? Peter, Peter is proclaiming the gospel, and these people ask what happens. What, what do we do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, again, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There is a new allegiance being made when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for our salvation. Baptism is what gives visible evidence that a person is decisively turning away from the life they used to live and turning to the Lord Jesus. In our baptisms, we proclaimed the Lord in heaven was our Lord, and we proclaimed to him, the church, and the world what Christ had done in our hearts and our response to his salvation work. Do you remember the day you were baptized? That may even have happened on a different day than you got saved, and that's okay. Think about your baptism. There and then, 
you made an open, visible, public profession of what Christ had done or had been doing in your heart. Don't take it lightly. The heavens were watching. The world was watching. As you turned from that old life you used to live, and threw yourself fully onto the mercy of Jesus Christ. Maybe there are times when the old you starts to rear their ugly head, or maybe that's just me. But your baptism can help you with that. As you look back and see, hey, there, that's actually where I can see with my eyes that God was doing a work inside of me, even though I might forget, and I'm not that old person anymore. I'm new. Second, baptism is a sign of forgiveness and cleansing of sins. It said that in Acts 2, verse 38, all the way over in Acts 22, verse 16. I'll just describe it for you as we go there. Actually, here, I'm I'm here. I'll read it for us. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's Ananias speaking to Saul before Saul was baptized. Look how closely, this is what I want you to see. Look how closely the New Testament links baptism with the forgiveness of sins. Inseparably. Now, we walk these lines very carefully. And rightly so in light of misunderstandings, even heresies in church history. This level of caution not to equate baptism with salvation because it does not save. Baptism doesn't save us. But this caution causes us to parse out everything about conversion really nicely. Don't we? We say, okay, the Holy Spirit regenerates your dead, dead heart, and then, and then you repent, and then here you, you turn to Christ, and then here you made a profession of faith, and that's when you were saved, and hard line. That's all you need. That's all you need to be saved. Nothing more, nothing less. And then after you get baptized. Yes, theologically all this is true. All of this is true and right and good. But let's not be afraid to talk about baptism the way the New Testament speaks about baptism. When the New Testament speaks about baptism, it doesn't parse it out. It actually speaks about the entirety of a person's conversion in this one act. Repentance, trust, forgiveness of sins, reception of the Spirit, baptism. And it can refer to the person's whole conversion by mentioning one or two moves within the process. Or all of them. Theologians call this a synecdote. A synecdote is a figure of speech in which a part can stand for a whole and the whole can stand for the part. Usually, baptism is the word used to represent the whole. Look over at Galatians 3. I'll show you this. Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Should we assume that Paul is forsaking repentance? forsaking trust in Christ, forsaking the gospel. He's only saying as long as you've been baptized into Christ, you, you've been baptized, you, you put on Christ. No, we can't say that. It would be unhelpful for us to parse it out that, that this only refers to a person's immersion in water physically. To be baptized into Christ entails everything else. Repentance, trust, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, reception of the Holy Spirit, entrance into his body. Another way to say, to say this is when the New Testament writers speak of baptism, they assume 
the presence of repentance and trust. They, they assume it's all there. So all that to say, when you think of your baptism, think about Christ really cleansing you from all your sin and forgiving you of all sin's penalty. Not that your baptism did that, but your baptism does show that. When you look at your baptism, you see your conversion. And yes, this should serve you as a visible sign to bring you assurance. When you doubt God's love, when you're tempted to forget the Lord, you can look at your baptism, which will bring to mind everything else. Third thing, third, def, uh, third beautiful thing about baptism. Baptism is a sign of union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Flip over to Colossians 2, verse 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not only does baptism remind us of the intimacy and oneness we share with the Son of God, it reminds us of the gospel, which we need constantly, now and every day. We never graduate from the gospel. Christians need to feed on the gospel regularly, but it also reminds us that our being unified with Christ means we were unified with him in his death, in his burial. We were unified with him in his resurrection. Think back, when you went down into that water, You died. You died. The old you died with Christ. And when you came up out of that water, the new you was born of water and of the Spirit. The new living you, the one who is unified with Christ, sealed by the Spirit, and able to walk in the light, to live a life pleasing to God. Let this be an encouragement to you, saint, for present day obedience as well. When you're tempted in ways you feel are common, look back at your baptism and remember that you died and you rose with Christ. Let this be the fuel for putting sin to death in your mind and heart in your life and be the fuel for living like Christ. Fourth thing, flip over to 1 Peter 3. Baptism is a sign of escape from divine judgment. I'm blanking. Thanks. I sing the song, to be honest. 1 Peter 3. What does Peter write in verse 20 through 21? Because he speaks about Noah passing through the waters. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not know did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's our cynic note, remember? Baptism saves you. Peter equates Noah and his family passing through the waters of judgment, the flood, and passing through safely with our baptism. He says baptism saves you. Think the whole conversion process, remember? 
as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice, it's an internal appeal to God, and it is through Jesus Christ that a person is saved, even in this context. But, but the point being is that we were saved from something, and that something was God's divine judgment. We all deserved God's wrath for our sin, but thinking of our baptisms, when we went down into that water and the water surrounded us, through our union with Christ, the one true Christ, we passed through the waters safely. We were delivered by the Lord Jesus. And praise be to God. Fifth thing, baptism is a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we've already discussed, we can't see our spirit baptisms, right? Because the Lord accomplishes this work, he brings about this work on his own, but our water baptisms visibly manifest the gift that we've received from God alone, our seal, our guarantee, our comforter. So, if, you ever, if you're ever tempted to think that God is far from you, or has left you for some reason, or if you're tempted to think that you may just not be saved, though you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you're just struggling with assurance right now, look to your baptism and remember the gift that the Lord has given you of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, remember that he has washed over you and cleansed you for all eternity. Remember that he's breathed new life into you and empowers you even now to walk in obedience. And the last one to close our time together. Back to Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. When we were baptized into the name of the triune God, Sorry, definition. Baptism is a sign of submission to the lordship of Christ and entrance into his body, the church. When we were baptized into the name of the triune God, as we've seen, we made an initiatory oath that God was our God and his people are our people. Invisibly, the Holy Spirit saved us by grace through faith in Christ. He grafted us into the body of Christ, making us members of Christ's universal, invisible body. So in our water baptisms, we were making visible what was already true of us. Christ is our Lord, so we were baptized into his name. We are members of his body, so we are baptized, and we join alongside other visible members of his body in order that we together might go, therefore, and make more disciples. Baptizing them. Here in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And in teaching, we're watching, caring, loving, rebuking, correcting one another. Because Christ is with us to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, we want to be found faithful. May we, RBC, be found faithful. Let's pray.